These are the trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. What can someone who lived in Italy over 200 years ago teach us today about trauma healing? You might be surprised. Today, we will be hearing from a member of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, an international group of Catholic priests founded in 1816 by the Venerable Father Pio Bruno Lanteri. For those of Catholic faith, this will be a special treat, as we will be learning more about Father Lanteri's life from Father John Wykes in Rome, who has directed a documentary about Lanteri's life and legacy. And for those of any other or no faith, prepare to be inspired by the hard-learned lessons of one man who moved through challenges of politics, health, and great loss to offer succinct and useful guidance to generations to come. Are you or someone you know looking for that next step in your career? Are you interested in mediation, conflict resolution, or conflict transformation? For 30 years, Baltimore Mediation has been a leader in the dispute resolution and conflict transformation field, training professional mediators and leaders across the U.S. in methods of conflict intervention and decision-making support from a relational approach. Trainings with Baltimore Mediation will give you the knowledge and skills to promote quality dialogue and informed decision-making between multiple people involved in conflict, whether in the workplace, family system, court system, or daily life. Baltimore Mediation's trainings are nationally acclaimed and sell out quickly. If you act now, you can secure one of the few spots open for the upcoming training, the 20-hour short course, Advanced Conflict Transformation and Mediation Skills Training, with a focus on family conflicts, parenting plans, and trauma. Find out more and register on their website at www.baltimoremediation.com. Welcome to Season 3, Trauma Healing Learning 24, Father Bruno Lanteri's Healing Legacy, with Father John Wykes, OVM. What does it mean to be holy? Hello, Blink of an Eye family. In our companion story episode, we left off with an account of my receiving a letter from Diane Beliveau telling me of how she was led to discover the life of Father Bruno Lanteri and to share her findings with me for Archer. It was a powerful moment and one that blossomed as the weeks and months unfolded as you are soon to learn in coming episodes. Father Lanteri, who lived over 200 years ago, spoke to Archer and me so clearly, so directly, that we chose this holy man to pray to for intercession, as we hoped for a creative miracle. Archer's complete recovery. We also hoped that 
when Archer was granted the miracle, that that would be the cause for Father Lanteri's beatification, or canonization, to sainthood. And if you're not familiar with what that means, this episode will bring it to light in a beautiful way. I was truly blessed to connect with someone who is intimately familiar with Father Lanteri's life and work, Father John Wykes, who lives in Rome and is the communications director for the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, the order that Bruno Lanteri founded in 1816. He has directed a documentary, Nunc J.P., The Life of Venerable Bruno Lanteri, in 2016, 200 years after the founding of the Oblates. He believes, as do many in the Oblates, that Father Lanteri's teachings are just as relevant today. Nunc J.P. is Latin and translates to now. I begin. To quote a letter from Lanteri, begin again, not only every day, but every hour of every day. If I should fall even a thousand times a day, a thousand times a day, I will, with peace in my heart, turn to God, ask his forgiveness, and begin again. As you join us in this conversation, and as you continue through your day, I invite you to reflect on that. And when you hit an obstacle, however big or small, as we all do, pause for a second, take a breath, and say, Now I begin. And every time you begin again, feel a little gratitude in your heart for the permission and encouragement to reset and move forward. If there's one thing you take away from this episode, it is this encouragement. In a way, I think that's what Father Lenteri would want, to spread this compassionate and uplifting affirmation as widely through humanity as possible that we do not have to be perfect, nor get discouraged for too long. Now I begin. Here we go. I'm wondering if you could share with us a bit about the path that brought you to the Oblates. Well, I was born and raised in Detroit. Very good parents. We were a practicing family, so certainly went to church. And when I was a young boy, the idea of a vocation came up in my mind, but it was sort of mixed up with other things. For example, maybe I'll be a priest, maybe I'll be an astronaut, maybe I'll be a doctor. I was kind of wavering between those three things. And as I got older, actually, I, I started moving away from the idea of being a priest and studied journalism and actually worked for a little while at a small suburban Detroit newspaper and also the Catholic television station in Detroit. 
But then I realized that I was being called. I felt this call to the priesthood. And this was back in the 1980s, so there was no internet. So what you did at that point is you just write to a bunch of different congregations. And I got a lot of answers back. I wrote to about 40 of them. And I, yeah, and I loved what the Oblates of the Virgin Mary sent back to me. Um, they were the only ones that listed all the courses that I would actually be taking. That kind of interested me. And then also there was some mention about social communication. That's the church term for the mass media. So that certainly caught my eye. And then the founder seemed to have a love of contemplation. And actually, at one point, Father Lanteri had, as a young man, tried to enter the Carthusians. And I could relate to that as well, because I had done many retreats at the Trappist Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, which had a big impact on my life. So I ended up visiting in the spring of 89. And I guess I liked what I saw, because then I entered in the fall. And there were some, as you could imagine, some roller coaster things going on with emotions and thinking, yes, I'm called, no, I'm not, and going through all that young man discernment that most seminarians go through. But I ended up saying, yes, this is my, my call. The Lord, I felt, was really touching my heart and my prayer, confirming that call. And I said, yes. And off we went, and I got ordained in 98. 25 years ago this year. Congratulations. Thank you. We hear about those in religious orders being called, and most lay people might not have an understanding of what that really means or how one even fully describes it. Maybe it's indescribable. But I'm wondering if we might just hear a little bit more from you about what, as you would describe it, it means to feel being called. Hmm. Well, from my own personal experience, I would call it a tug at the heart. And it was a strong one. At first, it was a series of coincidences that were too much to be coincidences. For example, there were a number of people who were approaching me saying, have you ever thought of being a priest? And I would say no usually. And they would say, and then I would ask, why did you ask that? And usually the other person would say, well, I think we need good priests. And then they would leave. And what's amazing about all these people um, uh, that I had this conversation with, none of them knew each other. They knew me from different backgrounds, different situations. One was a co-worker, one was at home, one was a longtime friend, one was someone who barely knew me. And I'm thinking, okay, what what do all these people see that I don't? (laughs) So then I began to pray about it and reflect a little bit about it. And I have to thank uh, my friend, if I can share the story. My friend and I went to a conference that was celebrating, I believe it was the 20th anniversary of the encyclical Humanae Vitae. And it was just a group of lay people and so on. And and we went to this display table where another religious congregation had some materials out and it showed a number of seminarians in a photograph. And I looked at the photograph and I pointed to it and I told my friend, I said, uh, you know, I often wanted to do this. You know, I was thinking of it. You know. 
And he said, well, why don't you? And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you? And I said, well, well, well wait a second. You mean leave uh, everything and enter the seminary? I said, well, you're the one who said it. And I said, well, I know I said it, but <laughs> now you're making it concrete. <laughs> Uh, and I said, well, you know, I'll never get married. And he said, oh, but you will be married. And I said, oh, okay, I get this idea. Okay. And I said, well, I won't have any children. He said, oh, you'll have many, many children. The whole, the whole parish where you're at, they'll be your children. And then I decided I was running out of things to tell him. And so then I began to pray about it. And much to my surprise, but in a way not to my surprise, that's when I felt this strong uh, non-stop tug at the heart, which was almost like a loud trumpet blast saying, enter the seminary and do it now. And I thought, what am I going to do with this? Because I was in the middle of graduate school. I was actually getting a graduate degree in English. I was halfway done with it. And I was seeing a girl at the time. And I was working at a job which I liked. I was happened to be working at a law firm as a proofreader, which wasn't exactly the, the most wonderful job, but it was a pretty good job with benefits and it was stable. And the home that I was in living at the time was the home that I always knew. I had never moved away from home. And in fact, we were in the same house. Uh, my parents never changed homes, so there was only one family home, and I had never moved out of there. Uh, so this was going to be a big decision, but I prayed about it, and I got confirmation from the Lord very strongly in a way that I could no longer doubt it. It was just it, it was just a good positive feeling about it. That's all I can say. That was and, the confirmation. And, yeah, that was the confirmation. And there was a certain amount of certainty that kind of surprised me that I was supposed to enter the seminary and I was supposed to do it right now and I was supposed to not worry about the graduate degree or anything like that. Um, and so that's what I did and I never completed that graduate degree. I got three other graduate degrees later, <laughs> so I kind of made up for it, but not that one. Um, and I realized it was the right decision to enter the congregation at that particular time so that I would end up with a particular group of guys that I really feel the Lord had called me to be with them. And it just makes perfect sense in retrospect. Yeah. I yeah. am so happy for you if any of us can feel that we've been called to whatever it is. Mothering, being a father, for you... Mm being a priest, for me, being a mediator. It's just when you have that clarity that seems to emerge over time, but when when it um, reveals itself, it's it's very crystal clear. Mm, mm, it's, a yes. real, it's a real gift. Well, I know you've been very active as the producer of a film on Father Bruno Lanteri's life. And it really brings me with that convergence of all of those talents, skills, and virtues that for you gave you the clear direction of joining this particular order. And then to produce the kind of works that you do, 
I would love to really open up a discussion now about Father Bruno Lanteri. Um, you perhaps know that he was very significant, is still very significant for our family as yes. we turn to him in times of the crisis with Archer and the mm. great medical distress with a number of coincidences that were just too hard to not be blown over with a feather by when you began to look at them cumulatively with the August 5th date of his death and the August 5th date of Archer's accident, which in mm. a number of ways was the death of a, the life as he knew it. The fact that Father Bruno Lenteri was 17 when mm. he suffered great illness in the chest for mm -hmm. Archer, his not being able to breathe, and he was 17. And it's, it's interesting because Archer and Father Bruno Lanteri even resemble each other oh my goodness. Uh, in their visage. <laughs> it is. It's just an oh my goodness. So let's talk about Bruno Lanteri. Yes, well, he was someone who lived quite a while ago, so that helps to give us a little orientation in terms of when he was alive. This would be 1759 to 1830. And he was in northern Italy for just about all of his life, except for one trip to Vienna, another trip to Rome. But otherwise, he was around Turin. And most people have heard of the Shroud of Turin. And he was in and around that area, born in a small town called Cuneo. And he ended up dying there, too. And, of course, that era is the Napoleon era. And so he was very close to pre-revolutionary France, uh, geographically speaking. And, in fact, he had a couple run-ins with Napoleon's police. And, and I was just very impressed by the life of Lanteri, most especially, I guess, two things. His holiness and his love for his confreres, his love for his fellow oblates. And in fact, he said on his deathbed, love each other, love each other profoundly. And that really struck me. It's an interesting and it's somewhat an odd life considering that he was a founder of a congregation because most of the times if there's a man or woman who founds a religious congregation, they're usually around for a number of years guiding the congregation and so on uh, before they pass away. For example, Mother Teresa who saw her congregation grow and flourish. Another example would be St. Ignatius of Loyola. With Father Lanteri, it was a little bit different. He spent most of his life as a diocesan priest. And it was not only near the end of the life that he founded the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. First as the diocesan rite congregation, where it's only in the diocese, but then pontifical rite, which means universal, you know, universally approved. And when that happened, he had only three years left to live. <laughs> and so he was an oblate of the Virgin Mary for just three years and then passed away. But everything that came before that, in a certain sense, fed into the spirituality and the life of, of our congregation. He was someone who had a certain love of contemplation. He lost his mother at a very early age when he was only about four or five years old. 
his father took him to an image of Mary and said to him, she is your mother now. <laughs> so the Blessed Virgin Mary is your mother. And that's how he, he started to have a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Later on, he felt certainly called spiritually. Even as a very young man, he was writing some very impressive spiritual things for his own benefit, for his own thoughts, certain resolutions that he wanted to do and so on. And at 17, he entered the Carthusians, which is the most ascetical order really in existence in the Catholic Church anyway. And, and that would mean, um, for those who might not understand? Meaning very strict, <laughs> very difficult life. These are monks, but they are actually a group of hermits in a certain sense. They have their own individual cells. They meet only once a week for a little bit of community time. But other than that, they are living a very stringent, disciplined, spiritual life of really complete poverty. And actually some rigorous physical activity because they have to, to take care of themselves, many times making, growing their own food, and so on. So Father Lanteri, at this time, he was just Bruno, little Bruno Lanteri, was a rather gawky-looking 17-year-old who was rather sickly. He was actually starting even to lose his eyesight even at that time. He was having poor eyesight. And the abbot apparently took one look at him and then just pointed and gestured outside the window towards the cemetery. And that's all he did. And it was basically the message was saying, look, if you stay here, you're not going to last long here. So you need to leave. So this experiment lasted eight days. <laughs> and, and he came back home. And then he scratched his head thinking, what am I going to do? And so then he went to Torino, or as we say in English, Turin, to study to become a diocesan priest. And it's when he was in Turin that he ran into a Jesuit priest named Father Nicholas von Diesbach very dramatic name for an interesting individual. And Lanteri at that time was very ascetical and strict and almost too strict with himself. In fact, he had been very much affected by a heresy known as Jansenism. Jansenism promoted a very rigorous and very disciplined theology and spirituality that was so oppressive that left most people very depressed. People rarely went to communion because they didn't feel they were worthy. Jansenist priests would refuse absolution to people going to confession because they did, perhaps they didn't think they were penitent enough. And it got to the point where scrupulosity was just flourishing. And it was Father Diesbach who convinced Lanteri that God is a merciful God. He's a generous and kind God. He's forgiving. And we don't need to be so strict with ourselves. What we need to do is give ourselves over to the Lord. And Diesbach suggested one of the, the special ways to do that is by doing the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And that's how Lanteri got interested in the spiritual exercises. And that's why, too, Lanteri, even at that point and then into his priesthood, was starting to preach and promote a merciful view of the Lord, stressing mercy and understanding and compassion in the confessional. 
And this astonished uh, many people of the time. And in fact, when the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, my congregation, first started, we were considered very lax. <laughs> we were considered probably, in, in modern parlance, way too liberal because we were absolving people every time they went to confession. We were promoting God's mercy and love. We were promoting the forgiveness of sins through confession. We were promoting frequent reception of communion, not infrequent, but frequent reception of Holy Communion. And all these things were looked down upon so much that many of the other priests in the diocese were rather angry with the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Hard to believe. So this really is, you know, is rather prophetic in a certain sense. Of course, Alphonsus Liguori had talked about God's mercy a great deal, and Lanteri was promoting that spirituality. But, but still, the whole attitude in terms of the confession and communion and so on, this is something that we would see much later in the 20th century with, for example, Pope Pius X uh, encouraging frequent uh, communion, and then later on the Second Vatican Council and uh, the different changes that occurred in terms of stressing the mercy of God through the sacraments. Was there a reason why Bruno did not then choose, with the influence of the Jesuit priest, to become a Jesuit? Well, that's an interesting story. He was thinking about it. <laughs> he was mostly uh, spending most of his life as a diocesan priest. After the fall of Napoleon Bonaparte, Northern Italy was in absolute chaos, really, because Napoleon had shut down all these religious congregations and so on, and uh, closed convents and churches and so on. And so now things were kind of getting back up, and there were three men in a little town of Carignano who wanted to revive the church in the area, and they wanted to start some sort of initiative, but they weren't too sure what to call it. And they heard of Father Lanteri, they heard of his reputation, and they asked him for advice. And eventually this became known as the Oblates of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which was the original name, diocesan right congregation. And they, it wasn't long before they asked Lanteri to be the head of this, this initiative. So then finally, Lanteri finds himself in this other religious congregation, but, but in a strange turn of events, what happens is, is that the diocesan bishop at the time actually wants to change the spirituality, change the mission of the Oblates of the Virgin Mary. He says, I need religious who are going to be at my disposal for the, the needs of the bishop. And to do your own spirituality, well, that's nice and fine, but you can't do it in my diocese. And Lanteri decided, well, rather than openly confront this bishop, what we're going to do is, is disband our congregation and go our separate ways. And that's what they did. And Lanteri decided, well, I guess I will become a Jesuit. So then, as this older gentleman. Uh, I think he was about, goodness sakes, he was in his 60s, I think, if I remember correctly, or about 60 years old. He decides he's going to enter the Jesuit novitiate. And so they decide to take him because they knew of his great reputation and so on. And as he was praying during a retreat that he was taking at the Jesuit house, he got the sudden inspiration and insight, no, I should not be a Jesuit. 
I should refound the Oblates of the Virgin Mary, but this time go right to the Pope in Rome and refound it this time as a congregation of pontifical right. And that way it would have universal approval. So he left the retreat and then got really, really busy very quickly and uh, almost basically ran to Rome with his secretary, Father Logero, and they presented these constitutions and norms to the Pope who approved the congregation in 1827. Wow. Yeah. So they continued with the name, but in a completely reconstituted charter, perhaps part of their original mission, but really more expanded as it relates to communion and confession and a very wide experience of compassion. And our experience, and, and with the reading on Bruno Lanteri, was his devotion to Mary, that I'd like to hear your views on and more about that, and his message of hope, like hope for everything he would write about. Well, both things are very beautiful parts of voluntary spirituality. On his deathbed, he spoke about Mary and did so with a very moving quote. He said, you know, I've hardly ever known any other mother except for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, she is really the foundress of the congregation. I'm, I'm not the founder. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the foundress and she will take care of this congregation as she always has. Father Tim Gallagher, a wonderful author, he, he often talks about this quote and says, we shouldn't go too fast past that first part of the quote. Now, the second part is beautiful, absolutely, but that first part where he says, I've hardly known any other mother except for the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is true because he, he lost his mother at a very early age. She died during childbirth. And adopted her as his spiritual mother and really as his earthly mother in a certain sense because he didn't have one. And so then it's very, very clear that the, this whole process with the founding of the congregation, diocesan, and then the disappointment and so on, then refounding it, he sees the Blessed Virgin Mary as the foundress. That's the way he always saw her. And the mother, a mother is one who takes care of her children, right? So she takes care of the congregation. We trust ourselves to Mary and everything is going to be fine. It's a very simple uh, devotion. It's not like he was writing very extensive, complicated theological treatises on the Blessed Virgin Mary. But he is often quoting, or we quote him, and, and there's quotes from his different letters and so on. He's often writing to spiritual directees and so on, talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary, trusting in her maternal care. She wants to be our mother. She is the mother of God, and so she is our mother as well. It's always with a tremendous amount of affection and tenderness. Not a whole lot of theological dialogue about theotokos or whatever, or different words that we can use to describe Mary, but 
uh, just this tremendous love and a child's trust in his mother. Wow, um, the, the, the true child-mother relationship, yeah. not defined by a treatise or a contract or yes. fancy words, but that, yeah. that safe, loved, warm yeah. feeling. Hmm. Mm -mm. And that, that trust in the loving mother and in trusting in God's mercy, put that together and then you have what you were referring to as hope. And Father Lanteri found that the biggest enemy in the spiritual life is spiritual discouragement. And I think he probably experienced this as a young man being affected so much by Jansenism. He knew firsthand what it was like to be spiritually discouraged. And thanks to Father Diesbach, he got out of that. And then as a priest and as a spiritual director, he was always encouraging his directees to nuncepi, which means now I begin, or Literally, now I have begun, like I've already begun. Even if I have fallen, I just get back up and I've already begun again to move towards the Lord. And in fact, one beautiful quote, he says, even if I were to fall a thousand times every day, a thousand times a day, I will get myself back up. I will trust in the Lord and I will begin again. I just love your love of his life and how you've put it into this amazing film. And to let people know, too, this is available for free online on YouTube. What you can look up is Nunc Chapi English, or if you prefer, Nunc Chapi Spanish, on YouTube. When you're on YouTube, if you see a picture of a priest on there and the little picture there, you got the video. And again, Nunchepi is spelled N-U-N-C. And then the second word is C-O-E-P-I. That's pronounced Nunchepi. So just to let people know, it's, it's uh, available for viewing at any time for free. Nunchepi, English or Spanish. And it is an international film. And I do hope, and I myself will take a look at it and cannot wait to do so. I'm wondering with that wonderful film, if you might give us an insider's look at the process of canonization. So there are different stages to the process. The first is someone has lived a holy life and people want the Vatican to know about it. So they submit a his cause to what I believe is now called the dicastery. Pope Francis changes them from congregations to dicasteries, but dicastery for the causes of the saints. And when that is submitted, that person is a servant of God. So anyone whose cause for sainthood is being considered as a servant of God. Then they collect all this data, testimonies, letters, uh, witnesses who perhaps were alive when the, the founder was alive. And they gather that all up and they write it up into huge volumes. And this is to attest to the sanctity of this person. 
And if the church thinks that this person has lived a life of heroic sanctity, then they call this person venerable. And that's what Pope Paul VI decided in the 1960s for Venerable Lanteri. So it took a while for him to be declared venerable. So then it comes to the miracles. <laughs> okay, so that's what we're praying for now. There is one miracle to get him beatified. So then he would be called Blessed Bruno Lanteri. And then another second miracle to become Saint Lanteri. And we hope that happens one day. And these miracles are looked at very, very closely, very carefully. All the medical records have to be submitted. And it has to be a miracle that is immediate. It's just suddenly like a snap of a finger. It has to be spontaneous. Nothing, it just happened kind of on its own. It has to be complete, total complete healing from one moment to the next, or whatever the miracle is. It doesn't have to be a miracle of healing, but could be something else. And there has to be no scientific explanation whatsoever for what happened. Also, it has to be enduring. It has to be a cure that has lasted. Now, I am sure that you have received many graces in your life, and Archer has too, and I hope those graces continue. What I just listed is the miracle that's required for beatification and canonization. That's what the church looks for. But I certainly hope and pray that Lanteri works miracles that may not get him beatified or canonized, but are still miracles and great graces and wonderful favors that are being given to people who are looking for help, looking for guidance, or in your case, are looking for, you know, physical cure and physical healing. It's so beautiful. We have absolutely lived into that. So for many weeks and months, I was very fervent and steadfast on the creative miracle to walk again. And then I realized that the creative miracle could really be expanded. We were getting Archer off of narcotics, that he was not depressed, mm that he then began to see that he had a future for himself. So so for me, as a mother, they were all the little miracles around <clears throat> us, um, that his first attempt back at art that he was initially so discouraged by and even <clears throat> had closed the door on, I, will, I don't want to have anything to do with that any longer. There was a a reopening of that door, and he is an artist today. Just oh, all kinds beautiful. of, you know, what we, you know, Catholic, Christian, or any any person believing in the source of all good, God, they're all they're all little miracles. I will share with you that, mm-hmm. as you listed, what would be looked at for the next miracle. It's, it's quite fascinating because actually where we are right now in the story on the podcast, the Shepherd Center took a very aggressive approach as a last-ditch effort in a way that was well, well-intended to get Archer off of a ventilator that he had been on for a mm. couple of months. And you know, each week on a ventilator is another more, much more difficult to get off because the body begins to really rely on it and also has a lot of psychological 
components that go with that as well. And they added an, an exaflator for hours a day and mm -hmm. a lot of saline, which we also mm -hmm. now know years later can be so harmful. But what happened is that Archer, it really backfired. And so they, you know, signs were up, cut the inexaflator. No one do that inexaflator machine because a number of blebs, medical blebs, which are tissue gross inside mm. the lungs, they're part of the condition of cystic fibrosis. You can have a, a couple or a few or a number and that what kills you is the accumulation of blebs because you can't breathe any longer. And mm. so an x-ray, a number of x-rays were taken and Archer had about three of these blebs, maybe five, if I recall. And then the next x-ray, he had, there were like 20. And he was not able to breathe even on the life support. And so we were praying with incredible intensity. And I was writing to what I now know were thousands of people praying to Father Bruno Lanteri for oh. Archer to breathe on his own and to remove the blebs. And when we left the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, we were beginning to, I believed, make some progress with some homeopathy, just simply that I, in my mind, I could envision Archer's lungs and another spiritualist envisioned his lungs like cathedrals that they were. Mm. So we were envisioning, you know, these, these cathedrals full of light. And mm. when we arrived at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and we did ask, I explained this to the pulmonary physician about the blebs. And so they took their own films and came back and said, we think you must be mistaken. We really don't know what you're talking about. There are none. Wow. And I, I said we were, we were still at the apex of one thing after another with Archer's care. We had still not gotten mm. home from ICUs. But I thought to myself, you know what? I wonder, I completely attribute that to Father Bruno Lenteri and all the prayers. But I'm like, we consider that a miracle. And so it's just mm. one of the many graces that we've been given. Thanks oh, to Oh, that is very beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really grateful. Mm. And I would like to tell people if they feel that they've received a benefit from Father Lenteri like that, please let us know. And you can visit our website at in the USA. It's omvusa.org. And there you can look up the contact and, and say hello and and enter a message. Oh, thanks so much for sharing that. I'm so happy for you and, and Arch. We are too. Is there anything you would love our listeners to know about your ministry or about Bruno Lanteri or the mystical church? that we haven't covered in this interview. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I think because we've been talking about Lanteri, I'll, I'll just stay with him and, and repeat the message that I think 
people nowadays want to hear because I think so many people are discouraged. I think that's why many times they'll stay away from mass or, or, you know, so many times you look at the internet, you know, and you're looking through the news and it seems so combative now, you know, everyone's fighting and yelling at each other on talk shows or whatever. And, and you begin to wonder where's, where's the hope here? And Lynn Terry had this undying trust in God and did had this, even though he was physically ill, even though his mother died at an early age, even though he was placed under house arrest, which I haven't talked about for the police of Napoleon Bonaparte. Then he tries to found a religious congregation, runs into problems with that, has to disband the congregation. In all these instances, he keeps saying, Num chepi, now I begin. I trust in the Lord. I trust in our mother Mary. Mother Mary is taking care of us, watching over us like a good mother. And God, our Father, is merciful. He's kind. He's generous with his graces uh, through the sacraments, through the Holy Eucharist, through the sacrament of confession. We don't need to worry. <laughs> we don't need to be afraid. And we don't, certainly don't need to be discouraged. And we should avoid spiritual discouragement because it can really get in the way. And the devil can use that to frustrate us. Instead, we just need to, as, as our Lord Jesus said himself, you know, become like a little child. And a little child is, you know, you look at them, they just trust everyone there. In fact, you have to teach them not to be so trusting and so open. They want to say hello to everyone. They want to kiss everyone. They say hello here, hello there. And with the Lord and with our Blessed Mother, we need to be trusting and open just like a little child and realize, you know, everything is going to be okay. It's a really powerful, powerful message, that combination of trusting in the loving arms of Mary as a mother <sighs> and trusting in God's mercy and really, really turning it over to mm, provide mm. hope and, and just peace. Hmm. Hmm. Peace. It's really powerful. Amen. Yeah. A amen. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm. I'm really okay. curious about the mystical experience of Bruno. Did he ever experience a vision of Mary or feeling that she came to him in some spirit form? Yes. Uh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, and it was on his deathbed. He had a vision of Mary with the baby Jesus. And she placed the baby Jesus on his chest and he started to complain because he said, I can't breathe because baby Jesus is so heavy. <laughs> this is precisely what he said. <laughs> um, it's a very interesting, somewhat humorous, but very incredible vision. We have in our general house right here, a beautiful chapel where there are scenes from the life of Lanteri in a beautiful ceramic artwork. And the last panel is Mary taking baby Jesus and placing it on the chest of Lanteri. Wow, oh. wow, 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 yes. who is weak of chest. 
Please, right. please remove the baby. <laughs> yes. And I can help to think when, you know, you talk about Archer and the trouble breathing and so on. That's what Lan Terry had for so much of his life. And on his deathbed, it seemed almost to some people that, you know, he could, he was still doing, trying to do some ministry and so on, but he was, he could barely breathe sometime. He had to catch his breath, this tremendous weakness of the chest. And it always seemed to people that it, it was just amazing to people that he could keep going as he did because he had that for so many years. So the first impact that people had when they, when, when they saw him, the first impression was, this man is weak, he is sick, I hope he's okay, Do, should we feed him something? <laughs> Maybe he needs to sit down. But then they realized he had this undying determination, this endless strength, this, this source of energy that they couldn't really explain. And they were very impressed by that. But as, as you were talking about Archer, I was thinking about that as well, because Lanteri knew exactly what it was like to be out of breath and to want to be able to breathe normally. And he uh, lived with that for many years. Yes, it's just a, the coincidences are just exciting to me in those ways. <sighs> and I really vicariously overjoyed that he had that experience with imagine the the few people who might say that they have actually held the baby you know had mm. that experience what a what an incredibly generous thing for mary to do yes very much so wow wow really really amazing uh. i'm a believer i love all the mystical aspects of the church and if we didn't mm -hmm. have them we wouldn't have the church that's right. That's right. And these are, they're not everything, but they're helps to us. They're little guides to us. We, we're only human, so we need these, these experiences, these little helps, these little indications that the Lord is there and watching over us. <laughs> right. So we're not spiritually discouraged, or if we are, for not too long. That's right. That's right. Well, may we both begin again, whatever that means for each of us today. And would you like to do a blessing as we close this time together? Oh, sure. Well, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon you all, all those listening to and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father John. Thank you for having me. Father Bruno Lanteri continues to share his gifts with Archer and with me, and with all of us. The further we explore his life and teachings, even two centuries later. I'm so grateful to the Oblates of the Virgin Mary for upholding his legacy and sharing his story and his teachings with the world to this day. Thank you, Father John Wikes, for your dedication to broadcasting Father Lanteri's compassionate wisdom far and wide at a time in history when it is greatly needed. Thank you for listening. Please help us spread this healing resource far and wide. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please share this with a friend who might gain something as well. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast directly by becoming a patron at Patreon. All those links are in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 24, The Sacred Pause. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye Podcast is sponsored by the Blink of an Eye Nonprofit, a nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury, to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. Blink of an Eye provides a national team of SCI-specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury, specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. Blink of an Eye also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. To donate and find out more, visit www.blinkofaneye.org.